Dee Welcome to a City Reading, Cork City Library's talking newsletter of library news and features. I'm Anne, and our readers in this episode are Glenn, Marion, Claire, and Michael. This month we bring you a preview of Cork World Bookfest happening online from April 20th to 25th, 2021. Part 3 in our step-by-step guide to researching your family tree by Jonathan Feely. Writing tips from our writer-in-residence, Tina Pisco. Revisiting old favourites, Joanne Harris's Chocolat series by Fnula Ronan. And The First Hot Air Balloon in Cork by Michael Lenehan. Looking forward to Cork World Bookfest 2021. Cork World Bookfest is going online and will virtually welcome Irish and international writers to Cork for an extravaganza of books and writing this April. The festival, which turns 17 this year, runs from Tuesday 20th to Sunday 26th of April and incorporates, as always, UNESCO World Book Day on April 23rd. This year we'll see writers from Australia, Latin America, Ireland and Northern Ireland read from their work in events taking place online. The programme also includes events with partners UCC and For the First Time, Nanonagel Place and Fiction at the Friary in bringing writers and readers together. David O'Brien, Corksy Hill Librarian, says, Every April we look forward to meeting writers from around the world. This year we're delighted to bring everyone together in our virtual event space. Patricia Looney from Cork City Library and Chair of the Festival says, Every year there's increasing demand for workshops for budding writers. We are delighted to facilitate these free of charge. Literary agents Simon Trewin, Ian Drury and Sarah O'Keefe will join us for our popular Meet the Agents and First Page Pitch, facilitated by Vanessa Fox O'Loughlin. We also look forward to giving a warm Cork welcome to two highly acclaimed and award-winning Australian writers, Kate Kennedy and Paddy O'Reilly. O'Brien continued... Cork World Bookfest, given its influences from the Iberian Peninsula and especially Catalonia, has always had a Hispanic flavour. This year is no exception. We are very pleased to welcome Santiago Roncagliolo, Josefina Baez and Carla Suarez, three rising stars from Latin America who are among the most exciting voices in contemporary Spanish language writing. The Fest is a participative, inclusive event connecting readers with established and emerging Irish and international authors. It also caters for all age groups with Teen Day coming back on Wednesday 21st of April, which includes author Louise O'Neill. There will also be discussions on children's books from around the world and on the role of literature in climate change. Languages featured during the fest include Spanish, Galician, Catalan, Basque, Latvian, German, Chinese, Indonesian, Irish and Hebrew. The Cork World Book Fest programme will be available on www. CorkWorldBookFest.com in April. Genealogy Series Part 3 A Step-by-Step Guide to Researching Your Family Tree by Jonathan Feely This is Part 3 of a four-part series. In this episode, Jonathan looks at civil and census records. Civil records of births, marriages and deaths. All births, marriages and deaths in Ireland have been recorded by the state since the 1st of January 1864. 
non-Catholic marriages have been recorded by the state since 1845. The General Register Office in Dublin has copies of birth, marriage and death registers for all of Ireland, excepting the six counties of Northern Ireland. The registers for Cork City and its hinterland are in the Registration Office of the Health Services Executive, Southern Area at Adelaide Court, Adelaide Street, Cork. Information included on civil records can be viewed below. Information provided on a birth certificate, name of the child, date and location of birth, names of the parents, their address and mother's maiden name, occupation of father, name of the person who registered the birth, their address and the date, information provided on a marriage certificate, names of the bride and groom, their ages, note, full age denotes over 21 and their addresses at the time of the marriage. Date and location of the marriage and date of registration. The occupations of the bride and groom. Names of both fathers and their occupations. Names of the witnesses to the marriage. Information provided on a death certificate. Name of the deceased, sex, age, occupation and marital status. Date and place of death and registration date. Cause of death. Name and address of the informant, person who registered the death. Irish Genealogy, Civil Records Section The Irish Genealogy found at www.irishgenealogy.ie is a website that allows users the opportunity to search a wide range of record sources in their search of their Irish ancestry. The website is home to the online historic indexes of the Civil Registers, GRO, of births, marriages, civil partnerships and deaths. The site is maintained and run by the Department of Culture, Heritage and the Gaeltacht. The digitization of the entirety of the state's civil records from a set variation of years affords researchers detailed records into their ancestry, which can be located efficiently through the search function on the civil records section of the website. The search function allows genealogists to search for individuals using name, civil registration office, date range and record type. The vast majority of records also contain a link to scan copies of the original document as well as a transcription page. While the vast majority of births, marriages and deaths should have civil records, there are of course exceptions, so one should not be too discouraged if records for their own ancestors are not available on the site. The date range of records available as of 2020 are as follows. Births, 1864-1920. Marriages, 1864-1944. Deaths, 1864-1969. The website is consistently having records added to it, with the 100-year rule being maintained for birth records. State registration of all non-Catholic marriages in Ireland commenced in 1845. In 1864, civil registration of all births, marriages and deaths commenced. These records are held at the General Register Office, GRO, in Dublin. Census records. The earliest fully surviving census returns for Ireland date from 1901. Both the 1901 and 1911 census returns are open to the public in the National Archives in Dublin. You will be able to see the microfilm copies of the 1901 census at Cork County Library and microfilm copies of the 1911 census in the Local Studies Department of Cork City Library. You will need to know the address or the name or number of the district electoral division where your ancestors lived. There is no surname index available to the census returns. The 1901 and 1911 census are now available online from the website of the National Archives of Ireland. You will find the online census at 
www.census.nationalarchives.ie. Census returns are among the most informative of all genealogical records. It is most unfortunate that almost all the census returns before 1901 were destroyed. Some of them were destroyed in the fire in the forecourts in 1922, and some were destroyed earlier on the orders of the government. Recently, fragments surviving earlier census have been added to the site from the years 1821 to 1851. These are quite rare and only provide a snapshot of what older census records would have resembled. The basic topographical divisions for the census are county, district, electoral division, townland or street. The household return was filled in and signed by the head of the household on census night 31st of March 1901 and 2nd of April 1911. There is one record for every household in the country. The information sought was name, age, sex, relationship to the head of the household, religion, occupation, marital status, county or country of birth, ability to read and write, knowledge of the Irish language, if deaf and dumb, dumb only, blind, imbecile or idiot or lunatic. In 1911, a significant additional question was asked. Married women were required to state the number of years they had been married, the number of children born alive and the number still living. The next census to be released is the 1926 census, compiled after the Irish War of Independence and the subsequent Civil War. Next episode, learn how newspapers, directories and niche records can help you research your family tree. Writing tips from our writer-in-residence by Tina Pisco. Writing is a lonely business. Most days it is just you and the page, or rather the screen. There is no boss to check up on your progress, no colleagues to bounce ideas around with, no coffee breaks or chats around the water cooler. For some, the lack of community can be really challenging. One of the most challenging aspects is the search for identity. If you work in a bank, you are a banker. If you work on a farm, you are a farmer, and so on and so forth. When are you officially a writer? Does the act of writing suffice or do you have to be published? This may seem like a silly concern, but imposter syndrome is strong in writers. It is easy to become disheartened. I am a writer or I write can seem like a pretentious thing to say. Writing is hard at the best of times. When you feel like an imposter, it can be crippling. Many years ago, when I was starting out as a freelance writer, I framed a clip from the Wall Street Journal and kept it on my desk to help me accept that I was indeed a writer. It was the first really big publication that I had written for, but I framed it for another reason. At the very bottom of the article in italics it read, Tina Pisco is a freelance writer living in Brussels. Over the years I have developed a number of ways to counter the loneliness of writing with its insecurity, lack of feedback and absence of community. Here are some tips that I give to all my creative writing students. Writing groups. Join a writing group. Writing is often described as a vocation or a discipline. I tease my students that this is not true. Writing is an affliction. A writer's group is a support network for the similarly afflicted. Here is where you can discuss whether to change your story from the first person, present tense, to the third person, past tense, without fear. Being part of a group of writers does wonders for your identity as a writer. It goes without saying that if you belong in a writer's group, you must be a writer. Hey presto! A note of caution, however, a great writing group is a real blessing, but a bad writing group is a true hell on earth. 
Shop around until you find a group that suits you. It's no use joining a group that writes poetry for publication in literary journals if you are writing a detective novel, and vice versa. Get the right fit and you will have found your tribe. Writers' events. Attending festivals, talks, lectures or panel discussions can be really inspiring. In the before times, Cork had a number of events throughout the year from O'Bale to Fiction at the Friary and from the Cork International Short Story Festival to the West Cork Literary Festival. COVID-19 has cancelled most of these live events, but far from disappearing, they have all gone online. Similarly, festivals around the country, as well as internationally, have adapted to the pandemic by putting their events online. Not a week goes by that there isn't some interesting event to attend. Best of all, tickets are often free or very cheap. Writers' workshops. Writing groups and events are really good to help you gain a sense of identity and belonging to a writing community. But if you really want to kickstart your writing, nothing beats a workshop. A good workshop gets you writing. It forces you to stop dithering and just get on with it. You get prompts for inspiration and deadlines for motivation. You also get guidance from the tutor and feedback from other participants. It is the whole package and the best thing you can do for your writing. I have never regretted participating in a workshop and have often found the seed of a short story in an assignment, prompt or writing exercise. As I have mentioned above, one of the advantages of the pandemic is the proliferation of online resources for writers. Writing groups, events and workshops can all be accessed from your computer. I hope that when this pandemic is finally over, we will continue to have the possibility to attend literary festivals or to participate in workshops online. Living as I do in the countryside, online events have opened up a whole new world that I would never have been able to attend, from a talk by David Mitchell to a flash fiction workshop in Dingle. Learn more about Tina and her work as our first writer-in-residence on our website www.corkcitylibraries.ie. Revisiting Old Favourites Joanne Harris's Chocolat series A review by Fanula Ronan Joanne Harris wrote Chocolat in 1999 to critical and popular acclaim and the novel was made into a movie starring Juliette Binoche. Three other books in the series followed in which we journey with Vienne wherever the wind blows her. In Chocolat, the story of Vienne and Anouk and not forgetting Pantouffe, begin as they arrive and open a chocolate boutique in Lanscanet in rural France, across from the church, at the beginning of Lent. This angers the local curate, Father Hainaut, who thinks the souls of his flock will be endangered by the temptations of chocolate, Lent being a time for self-denial. Vienne lives her life by her own rules, and together with a quiet charm, a little bit of magic and, of course, some delicious chocolate, she wins over many of the local population. She also has enemies, not just Father Reynaud, but also Caroline Clermont, a churchgoer, and Paul Muscat, a violent, drunk wife-beater. Vienne befriends Armand, Caroline's mother, and sets about reuniting Armand with Luke, her grandson, and over time she befriends Josephine, Paul's wife. When Vienne decides to have an Easter chocolate festival, Renault rages at her from the pulpit, but Vienne will not change her mind, and this sets her on a collision course with Monsieur le Curé. 
Vienne and her family are not the only newcomers to the village, much to Reynaud's chagrin. Roux and his band of travelling gypsies arrive to camp by the river. Vienne and Roux become friends, and maybe more, and together with Anouk she begins to settle into life in Lanskene. Renault is not happy, and so begins to make trouble. Vienne must use her considerable powers to restore peace and get to Easter in one piece. In Lollipop Shoes, Vienne and Anouk have changed their names to Jan and Annie, and together with little Rosette they live over their rented chocolate shop in Montmartre. Vienne fits in well in Bohemian Paris, but Anouk is in secondary school and is being bullied, and as she begins adolescence, her relationship with Vienne deteriorates. Rosette is almost four, silent and prone to accidents. Vienne is at a low ebb. She no longer makes chocolate and buys it instead. She feels she no longer connects with her customers through her chocolate and domestic magic and seems to be content to accept the attentions of Thierry, the owner of the shop. Rue reappears and is unaware that Rosette is his child. He is still a wanderer and Vienne is torn between him and Thierry. Zosie d'Alba enters their lives on the Day of the Dead and seems to offer them hope. She reminds Vienne of her former self. She seems to have magic. She connects and understands people. Zosie is charming, beautiful, helpful, and with her lollipop shoes, she seems to be the answer to all of their prayers. She sorts out Anouk's bullies and helps Vienne retrieve her chocolate-making skills and thus boost the flagging fortunes of her chocolate shop. Zosie's help comes at a price, however, for she covets identities, and Vienne has the fight of her life, not alone to hold on to her own soul, but the souls of those most precious to her. In Peaches for Monsieur le Curé, Vienne returns once again to Lascanet Soutane. Rue and Vienne are living contentedly on a houseboat in Paris when Vienne receives a letter from beyond the grave from Armand, who died eight years previously. Armand advises Vienne to return to Lanscanet because the village needs her again. Vienne is intrigued and returns to the village to find it much altered. It is the beginning of Ramadan and a community of Muslims, complete with mosque and minaret, now live across the river. Vienne's old chocolate shop has been turned into a Muslim school for girls, but has burned down. Father Renault has been accused by his community of burning the school, which he denies. He has been removed from his position and he appeals to Vienne for help. Vienne sees that her friends from before have also changed, not alone Renault, who is humiliated and fearful, but also Josephine, though always polite, is cool towards her. She now has a son, Jean-Philippe, and Vienne wonders could Rue be the child's father. Inez, who ran the school, is disliked by both sides, the villagers and the Muslim community. She is aloof and gossip about her abounds. She does not want to be part of the community and lives alone with her daughter. Inez is a mysterious figure and Vienne is intrigued by her. Vienne moves in to Armand's old house 
and begins slowly to befriend the Muslim community and she discovers what is behind the burning of the school. Food plays its part in easing tensions as does the subtle magic that is Vienne's stock in trade. Can Vienne help solve the problems of her beloved Lanskanet and restore peace once again? The Strawberry Thief finds Vienne still living in Lanskanet along with Rosette, her special child who is now 16. Anouk has left home and lives in Paris and Vienne misses her. Vienne has settled down and has become part of the community. She owns a chocolate shop once more, but magic has taken a back seat in her life. Rosette comes into her own in this novel. She has her own magic and seeks to live life on her own terms. When their old friend Narcisse dies and leaves a pot of oakwood land to Rosette and bestows a troubling confession to Renaud the priest, life in the village is once again disrupted. Narcisse's greedy daughter is not happy about the bequest and wants to regain the wood, which she perceives as valuable. A new shop opens across from Vienne, owned by a mysterious tattooist Morgan, who draws the villagers to her, with her ability to know the image the villagers need to be tattooed on their skin, and Vienne senses problems ahead. Morgan is a beguiling character, a lot like Vienne, but she brings her own sort of magical power, and Vienne senses a threat to herself and the people in peaceful Lanskanet. The magic which Vienne had kept in check now comes into its own, as Vienne once again has to draw on her considerable skills. This entertaining story explores the parental sadness of letting children grow up and become independent. It is a tale of guilt, age-old secrets, mysticism and, of course, magic. I would recommend all four books in the Chocolat series. They are all enjoyable reads, a feast for the mind and the senses. Today we have the story of the first hot air balloon in Cork. The first hot air balloon, which was named Aerostat Revelion, was launched on September 1783. The passengers comprised of one sheep, one rooster and one duck, and the balloon remained airborne for a grand total of 15 minutes before crashing to earth. King Louis XVI of France had originally decreed that condemned prisoners were to be used as guinea pigs for these pioneering experiments. But this was later rescinded. The first manned attempt was on November of that same year when Joseph and Etienne Montgolfier flew their hot air balloon over Paris for nearly 20 minutes. Only five months after the first successful launch, the balloonists turned their attention to Cork. One can only assume that the geographical location and weather conditions of Cork were ideal for this new form of transport. On the 27th of March 1784, the hot air balloon ascended near the Mardyke at approximately 4 o'clock, much to the curiosity of the huge crowd of spectators who had gathered for the event. This successful airborne adventure 
finished at 6 o'clock when the balloon descended at Cooper's Hill after covering a total distance of 18 miles. Before its descent, it was observed by John Moynihan, a curious resident of the district, who saw this bizarre apparatus floating high up in the sky. He was quite convinced it was the work of the devil. However, his interest made him follow it to its landing spot. He had never heard of these wonderful flying objects before, and when he saw flames coming from the tube at the end of the balloon, he was quite convinced that it was Lucifer himself about to land. Shortly afterwards, he observed that the so-called demon had landed between two rocks and had been secured by strong ropes as if it were a prisoner. The airmen brought it home, and the neighbours, having heard of this weird flying machine, gathered in numbers nearby. Unfortunately, a spark landed near the inflated balloon, causing the inflammable gases to explode, making a sound louder than thunder, and a man and a woman were badly injured. There was complete consternation, and people ran everywhere, desperate to escape this fiery monster. Several women fainted, and those that ran to safety were convinced that they had escaped from the fires of hell. Fortunately, the first ascent of a hot air balloon flying over Cork had ended successfully for its brave aeronauts. I hope you enjoyed this episode. For information about our libraries, services and projects, please visit our website at www.corkcitylibraries.ie or visit our social media channels. Music is by Chris Toomey from his album Midnight on the Water. Thanks for listening. Slán.